Tonight, that doesn't go there. We're gonna discuss the Tulsa King, and then we will discuss why Peripheral is so good, and conclude tonight's broadcast with one of the greatest episodes in Star Trek. All this coming up right now on The Writer Brothers. And that looks a little better. I knew I forgot to do something during prep today, but oh well, it happens. Welcome back to the Ryder Brothers, of course. Uh, your home now for Tulsa King, the Peripheral, and of course DS9 until next week. But we will discuss more on what's coming up at the end of the show. Not right this second. First of all, want to welcome our panel of amazing people. First of all, Mr. Corey Owen, Witch in Residence. How are you doing today? Doing great, man. How you doing? Awesome. Glad to be here, as always. And, of course, Mr. Pollo Zapatos. How are you, sir? Wonderful. Wonderfully, wonderfully free for the week. Got a long weekend. Happy Thanksgiving to all of our uh, audience and friends. Hope you guys are having a good turkey dinner this Thursday. Yeah, I know I'm definitely looking forward to that myself. Um, but we are here, of course, to discuss, uh, one new show on Paramount Plus that, uh, is quickly gaining a lot of traction throughout the YouTube community, but also we mostly wanted to pick it up because we do like Sylvester Stallone. I, I think that's safe to say for all of us. We're fans enough. And, uh, Big you Italian know, fan. who wants to do the play-by-play for this one? Wow, man. Um... All right, so we start with Sly's character getting out of jail. And uh, as is tradition, when you get out of jail and you're mobbed up, you go see the Don. Well, life has changed for the mob in in Jersey here. And, uh, you know, a lot of things have changed. And they've decided that the best use for Sly's character is to start setting up an operation in Tulsa. Why Tulsa? Because it gets him out of the city. That's why. So he gets out there, meets a, a, a cabbie who he decides he likes and decides to make his personal driver. He finds a business to start taking over right away. Gets into the protection racket on a pot shop. And it seems like everyone in the pot shop is just too stoned to argue with him about the case. Um... He finds himself a bar with a couple of people he likes hanging out with. And he finds himself a girl, kind of. Uh, Only she realizes uh, that this might not be the guy for her. One, because he's old enough to be her grandfather. And two, because she's in the ATF and the FBI just sent them a hot tip that a mobster came to town. So that pretty much ends her worst possible scenario for a one-night stand. Uh, did I miss much there? I, I think I covered most of the the highlights, but... Oh, uh, this... I guess I should ask, did you only watch one episode, or did you watch the second one, too? I only watched the first one this week. Okay. 
Um, well, okay. There's a lot of development that takes place in the in the second one. It's it, both episodes are great, but we'll just kind of try to keep focus on the opening since that's mostly what a lot of people want anyway. We don't need to spoil the whole show. Arende writes in, "Hello, people. Hello, Arende. Welcome, uh, hey. welcome to the show. Glad you're here." Um, yeah, John, I think you had some uh, some excitement expressed with this show uh, earlier in the week. Why don't you go ahead and share that with uh, with everyone else? Yeah, so I'm I'm a huge Italian Stallion fan, uh, mostly because he's one of the few 1980s porn stars to become one of the greatest action heroes of all time, and I think that is hilarious, especially as Rocky Balboa, The Expendables, and for him now to finally grasp what good acting looks like. I didn't think I needed it but I'm so glad I got it because like I've watched all the Expendables one, two and three, like 10 times each. And I've watched most of the Rocky movies at least twice each. And for him to show up here in the Tulsa King and actually finally play a gangster, according to what everybody knows a gangster to be. And then for him to then not do what he normally does which is what if sylvester stallone was a gangster that's like that's his normal acting style and this one was finally like no you're a gangster who just happens to be played by sylvester stallone and 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 i love it like not only does his character feel like nothing we've ever seen him do before but then to realize that he was 75 in this episode i don't know if that's his real age but i'm assuming uh I didn't think 75 year olds could learn an old dog learning new tricks has officially been disproved as you can teach an old dog new tricks because he's doing it and he's so good and it's so so funny but only because he's 76 good gangster 76 look at that he's even playing a young guy on the screen But no, I think I love this show. I think he's such a good guy or good actor, finally. Like, I've just always loved Sylvester Stallone because of his history in Rocky Balboa. Like, they said, we'll buy it, but you can't be Rocky. And he said, well, I'm going to go be Rocky and I'm going to do it myself. And he did. And now here he is as the Tulsa King being exactly who they paid him to be, not... Sylvester well, Stallone. Well, now, John, I do have to correct you a little bit. He's not a gangster. Just ask him. He's an industrialist. What is an industrialist? Nobody knows. But he is one because a gangster has negative connotations. Uh, yeah, an, an industrialist it, is it like a seems like an green. industrialist is like a sandwich artist. It's a made-up title. There you go. <laughs> and I could say but that because I, I used to be a sandwich he's... artist. <laughs> Well, I think it's funny because he, he acts, he comes from a time where like getting called a gangster by the public was like a huge character flaw. But now he's like sitting in the car with a millennial and this millennial's like, what's up gangster? You look good, gangster. He's like, that's a term of endearment now? No. <laughs> well, that's, that's one of the best like, First scenes, of all, right? I earned that title. And second of all, 
it's not a term of endearment, but also don't call me that. <laughs> oh, we had a we had a couple of good conversations like that. I mean, coming up in the peripheral discussion, the the MFR combo was fantastic. Oh, it's like, oh, you know, my mom thinks it means my friend, and it's like, well, I mean, technically, <laughs> so, but we'll get more on that later. Yeah, it, it it definitely there's a lot of good actors on this uh, on this show. We got a good lineup so far. There isn't a single person that that isn't uh, showing up on screen to to give their best, and I think that's fantastic to see from from uh, looks like some some new up and comers, but also some people that have been around. Um, the guy uh, who owns the pot shop, of course, you might recognize him as Gilfoyle from. Silicon Valley, which in my opinion is still my favorite role that that actor has done, just because yeah, it's so. I, I was gonna say that same thing. I love his new. Gilfoyle's my favorite in that show. Um, all right, Arende writes in says, "Petey was a sandwich artist. I could just picture you asking, or just picture your wife asking you for one. Nice inversion of the meme." Um, yeah, that was actually years ago before my wife and I were, were dating. I worked at a subway for a couple of weeks and man, do I not miss that job, but the sandwich shop I wanted to work at didn't hire me. So it is what it is. Um, yeah, ironically enough, my wife actually works at Taco Bell now and that was my first job. (laughs) I was going to say, Petey, somewhere in there, there's a joke about you, uh, getting fired for offering somebody the foot long, but, uh. You know, we'll, we'll we'll keep that one away. No, no, I got fired for a number of reasons, all of which I brought on myself. But the one I was actually proud of was promoting the sandwich shop I actually wanted to work at, and I was it was like, yeah, but it well, I have my reasons for being obstinate there, and also I was a young dumb teenager at the time, so I didn't know any better. That's how I ended up in the military. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm not like proud of it, proud of it. Like, oh, it was a great thing I did bringing down a corporate chain that literally will withstand any amount of promotions of the competition. <laughs> it was just, it was like, that's one of the reasons they listened. And I'm like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> I feel like that's one of those moments where you say, sorry, I'm not a liar. They do make sandwiches better than I ever could. <laughs> And I was the one making the crappy Subway sandwiches, and I knew. And that, oh, all right, you know what? Fine. A little bit of a rant time. So the one I worked at was in a hospital, and they wanted to treat it like it was a normal Subway. And I had a problem with that on a personal ethical level. When when someone's in the Subway at the hospital, they're there to get food and go about their miserable life. Okay, They're not there for vacation or to get a good sandwich. They're there because they have to be. So I'm not sorry. Yeah, I'm not sorry that I don't feel comfortable asking a doctor, a nurse or a potential patient who's probably there for horrible reasons. Oh, oh, your mom died. Oh, that sucks. Would you like to make your sandwich a foot long? No, I'm not going to do that. Like, like they didn't treat it like they should have. Like it was a privilege to even be at this hospital. Not, you know, uh, we'll just, you know, run it like a regular, regular subway. No, you're, you're there at the hospital's discretion. You need to act with some kind of decorum, not so, uh, we want to sell you more stuff. What? Make the hospital want you, not make the hospital regret having allowed this lease agreement. Yeah, no, and and I actually, there was actually a guy who came in who, who you know, he grabbed a bag of chips and he thought, and it was like, oh, sorry, sir, that's not included. But I could tell, like, the look on his face, he was so dead inside. And I'm like, you know what? 
I got you this one time, man. It's it's fine. You're the reason you are here. I can tell is not because a family member is having a baby. You, you're you're clearly in some turmoil right now. Far be it. You're, you're the, doing yeah. The other the, thing. The yeah. last thing you want right now is is you know teenage millennial freaking. Hey, you want to pay five more dollars for a, for a slightly larger sandwich? Anyway, speaking of ripoffs, the Tulsa King is not going to be ripped off. <laughs> and that is why he is, that, that's basically what he's trying to do. The owner of the pot shop seems to think that he is ripping him off. And of course, now we're going to start seeing how this protection relationship works, which I like how they're addressing the whole thing with the, with the pot shop where he's like, oh, you know, it's totally legal. Well, no, it's not. The Fed boys can show up at any time and raid your store and there's nothing you can do. Uh, all right, so we do have uh, Mahalo, Oregon, uh, which may or may someone I may or may not know personally uh, laughs and says, "True, can't have people sobbing in their sandos because you tried to upsell the menu." Yep, that's correct. Or you know, just have them look at yeah. me like I'm the most horrible person for thinking of asking such a question and leave. And it's like, well, yeah, I can only ex- talk to my experience in a hospital. I don't want to talk to anybody I'm buying anything from. I, I don't want to share any part. Of, I want to order my sandwich exactly as I said. I want you to get it perfect and not say have a good day because I'm at a hospital not having a good day. Yep. And that happened. Yeah, like, that happened to my coworker. Bye. That happened to my coworker. They they were like, you know, you know, he's like, oh, hey, how's your night going? And she's like, oh, you know, great. My sister was in a car wreck and it was just it was all downhill from there. And I'm like, this is why I don't try to sell them bigger sandwiches. Yeah, it's like, well, you know, other than the fact that I got to be here to get a needle in the eye, it's not doing that bad, right? Like, I mean. What will make this experience best for you? I want my sandwich. It's exactly what I was hoping you were going to say. And that's how I carry myself. (laughs) Always tried to be with a smile, but you also want to try and read the room. Someone's there. They're probably not even going to remember the interaction. Just make it go as easy as you can. Yeah, make them remember it even less. Like, wait, did I actually pay for this? It's a good sandwich. I don't even remember going to Subway to get it. Actually, That's what you want at the hospital. Last year. Subway. last the best sandwich you don't remember eating. You don't La- remember paying for it. Last year, I was actually in that hospital making a delivery for, for a job that I also hated. And, uh, yeah, that subway has long since gone, and I was not surprised. I was like, you guys are trying to run it like a business when you need to... Okay, in the one the one place where you get to set up shop and you want to have a little decorum and maybe forego the usual salesman tactics, it would, it would be in a hospital. But what, what do I know? I feel like that's the one place where you just... Like, the person who's signing that lease goes, hey, I'm not going to make a profit. And they go, yeah, no, 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 that's what we expected. Make the best subway in a hospital ever so that all the other subways that do make a profit now have something to like stand back on. Like, no, we have subways in hospitals that are hemorrhaging losses because we care about people getting a good sandwich at the worst time. And we're not hemorrhaging losses because you're going to upsell because you don't work at the hospital. But those guys at the hospital, they don't have to do anything. They just have to make the sandwiches. That's it. Yeah. That being said, Tulsa King, honestly, I think it answers the question of what if you had com- comedic writers writing for The Sopranos? Because honestly, this feels like you have the moments of like, you know, true serious mob violence 
but it's always happening because of hilarious reasons. Right? And just the most hilarious observers. Like, yeah. in the first episode, after she, like, or not she, but after Stallone domes the, uh, the, the security guard, he's like, he looks over at the other cashier, and she's like, he's like, Are, do you need an invitation? She's like, I'm so high right now, can I just stand here and not move? And he's like, alright, I got you. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? Or... The the other one that I, I I personally thought it was absolutely great because similar things actually happen in my life, where he he's got his driver and he's told his driver to go get a new car, and the driver shows up in an old beater and he's like, "This ain't my new car," and his driver's like, "Look, they wouldn't sell it to me. They thought I was selling. They thought I was dealing drugs or something. I had that much cash on me," and you're sitting there going like. You know, the best part about it is this is actually drug money. Right? And it is cash from a drug from drug money. And but you know, does but what does Stallone do? He goes in, plays the you know, the friend to the angry black man and proceeds to beat the hell out of the dealer until he makes oh, no, 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 no Stallone car. he painted it perfectly. He was like, I think it's uh hilarious that you thought he was the one that was going to raise hell. And the moment I walk in, you treat me with respect. And he's like, why is that funny? And then he just domes him. Like, he's like, I'm the gangster. Just drop him. Just because he's black yeah. doesn't mean he's a gangster. I'm the gangster that sent him here with my drug money to buy my car. And you disrespected him. So now I have to disrespect you because he's my teammate and you're not. Yeah. This guy's the cool guy. You, you you've annoyed me. <laughs> I was the one to back him up, and uh, you made him need backup. That's your bad, bud. Yeah. yeah. And the funny part about it was, that's kind of how it went when I went to go get my first car, too. Because <laughs> I made a fair bit of money in tech, but I was also in my club days, so I had, what, spiky short blue hair purple eye contacts in and I was gothed up to the nines when I went shopping for my first car nobody took me seriously until they realized I was paying in cash yeah and that also I feel like that's the big thing that really highlights that whole scene in this show was because the dealer didn't have to suddenly have morality and not take a drug dealer's money but yeah. he had morality in not taking a black drug dealer's money. But then when he gets his ass kicked, where did his courage go? Where did his morality go? He didn't call the police back. He never had his fine. He was just being a racist piece of shit. And he got yeah. teeth busted out for it because that's what he deserved. Yeah. I mean, look, you know, there's a lot of shows out there that are... are you know, doing this whole, you know, trying to show off modern day problems for, for, you know, minority groups. This is the first time I've actually really enjoyed that scenario playing out. Agreed. Because this right. is the way it's supposed to play out. Right. And, you know, like, this is the first time it was actually written really great. Right. 
Uh, Arendi, hilarious mob horror. Q, Be- Q and Benny Hill theme song. Yeah, like that's what made it great was the entire time. Like we're, we're dealing with, you know, a scenario that has occasionally cropped up in the, the history of North America. And whenever it has, it's been terrible. But this is played in such a way that you couldn't help but laugh your way through it. And I think that's something we all in like you're laughing in spite of yourself because there's a dude bloodied on the floor getting like strangled by the by, you know, the cord on his phone and you can't help but laugh. And if more writers in Hollywood paid attention to scenes like that, I think we could actually have some decent plot here. And that cues my next big like, did you guys what did you guys think? Because this whole episode, we're meeting the new Sylvester Stallone character as he is being introduced to Tulsa. And we're meeting people, him doing things, him being the gangster that he is. So we really start to see what kind of gangster he is. And we don't know who these other people are that he's meeting them, but we're slowly, slowly starting to get to know them. We see that his driver is actually lives with his parents. His dad's been a hardworking man his whole life. The reason he lives with his parents is because nobody can afford rent on their own anymore. And like all of this is cued. And then not to mention the relationship where the Tulsa King is sleeping with an ATF agent who doesn't know that he's the Tulsa King, but then finds out afterwards. And then now the episode ends. It turns out every person we've met matters to the greater story. But we didn't know that until the last 10 seconds. Like, as far as premiere season series openers, this is what everything that we've roasted needs to learn from. Because this did it perfect. Oh, Oh, I'm just waiting. Because, guys, I know you guys have seen the second one. I haven't yet. So please don't ruin it if this is the case. But I'm waiting to see the woman who sprayed him with holy water right near the beginning. I'm I'm hoping she has some deep plot story involvement as well. <laughs> I as far I mean, as we at this know, point, I, I wouldn't be surprised. Episode yeah. two, I, we don't know. Yeah, but, but I, if I now you do want like that to be the comeback at the last episode, just <laughs> if you do like the humor, though, there <laughs> there is a couple of really funny scenes in the second episode when they go meet the grower. Oh man, that whole. Uh, I can't get into that too much, but uh, oh yeah, no. I that, love that, when that he whole... changes his name and doesn't say sorry for it. <laughs> Not gonna yeah. repeat it, because, but it's so good. And then when he's like, "We got off on a bad foot," but uh, I want, I definitely want to smoke the peace pipe. And he's like, "Yeah, I'm really sorry about it." And he's like, "I'm not. I could use ten of him." <laughs> I, yeah, that was great. Yeah, <laughs> when he's, yeah. To the to the other, he's like, oh no, don't be. I, I, if anything, that was a job interview. Yeah, um, it, it's <laughs> that's it's, what I read too. So yeah, I, I do, was like, did he just find his new muscle? <laughs> so the uh, the 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 thing that hooked me though was uh, the theme song. Um, yeah, the and the music on this show is brilliant because they managed to take. Some some speakeasy blues style jazz, mash it together with kind of country folk style music. So basically, they took a genre of jazz, a genre of country, and it's not crap. Wow, uh, that 
and the, and the whole visual images of having the postcards of Tulsa overlap the cities of or the streets of New York that was also a brilliant touch as well everything about this movie, the movie everything about this show so far is 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 there's a lot of thought that's gone into every piece and it's that's what's showing yeah ahead, like John. the color scheme like the color scheme in that title sequence is Tulsa like if I were to imagine what Tulsa Oklahoma looks like and then I saw that color scheme I'd be like yeah good enough because like yeah, exactly. it, it's so bright sun on desert sands and then throughout the whole show what do we see bright sun on desert sands and it's just oh man like I really do feel like this is this is the point like I don't I don't know if Paramount paid for this once it was pitched and just let the team that like pitched it run their show or if this is one of those like Paramount finally found out how to buy good writers but like however this event happened well, this is how you pick the next Star Trek group because like Paramount well, obviously found good writers I can tell you this the production company behind this is Stallone's production group that's what I thought. Yeah, and Stallone's production so, group also did Samaritan, which was yep. magnificent. Yeah. Yeah, the issue isn't Paramount finding so, writers. I, it's that Kurtzman can't find writers for Star Trek. <laughs> well, one has to understand quality to hire quality. Which is so freaking annoying when it comes to Stallone because never in the history of my entire life would I credit Stallone with knowing what good writers look like ever but then the same thing would go <laughs> I, I wouldn't think that Stallone could find good action heroes but then like I remember watching a, a I want to say it's either Jimmy Fallon Conan or uh, Leno they discussed with Statham about the Expendables 2 and Statham goes I've never worked for a guy who's so hardcore that he will cut scenes if we had to use a stuntman he's like i'm never gonna be a like they, he was like they explained it like the stuntman shows you how to do it right and then the actor have to do it or that scene's not gonna make it to the movie like your character isn't gonna be as badass as you aren't and that was like stallone like to me that's something i've always remembered about stallone and to see it now how that transcribed into writing like you're not going to stay in my production company unless you can write. And then we go Samaritan, Tulsa King. One, two. One, two for his company. And it's just perfect. It's organized. Yeah. It's written properly. It's everything that we ask for, for the minimum standard, the middle standard, and the high quality standard. And then it's there. That's where Stone's company and products keep coming out. And I think that's the biggest thing is the guy who owns it who puts his face to it goes no we're not going to put out bad and if we write bad we rewrite and if we yep. can't rewrite then we kill it darn <laughs> that, that's yeah. the vibe I, mean, I got and that's what i'm seeing he, from his work yeah he absolutely is bringing in the right people to do the right job and if the quality isn't there he is not afraid to kill it and start over i'm willing to bet you he sat down with with this script and went okay if in every other scene I'm not getting a laugh, we're not doing this. And sure enough, every other scene we're getting a laugh. And that's and, amazing. And a laugh within this scene. Not just a random funny. Not just a random like, oh, this might be 
a good joke to throw in there throughout the whole show and, and and now we have a catchphrase no it's like no this scene required a specific beat of comedy that is only gonna work in this scene yeah and and it's got to be that the our uh our viewers are laughing with the character at the absurdity not because of the absurd you know like they're not laughing at us they're laughing with the main character because that's what and, we're getting here and the character himself isn't the funny one no like it, nothing it's Stallone the world does reacting. is really that yeah, yeah. I, I like that because you're not laughing at Stallone's actions you know that that's not what you're supposed to do you're not supposed to throw water bottles at, at security guards you're with laughing at force how absurd that happened. Yeah. And the best, and the, the best is the <laughs> next scene when he comes back to the the pot shop, he brings him a bottle of, of Tylenol. He's like, here, man. Not a bottle. He bought him a, like an actual like gas station amount specific to hand him. Yeah. Like he yeah. knew he owed him for that incident. And he also like was, he was trying to show like, I'm not holding anything against you. I had to hit you to show how important I am. And you yeah. took it well, take some Advil. Yeah. <laughs> whereas, whereas the other guy who got hit because he needed to get hit is just having a bad time. That's more episode two, so I won't go all the way into it. But like the first person punched by Stallone can't get over it because of his ego but the security guard who got beamed gets over it within two scenes because like he doesn't have an ego equal to Stallone's power no like yep Arende oh yeah go for it so I say Arende writes in an apple a day or bottle keeps anyone away if you throw it hard enough correct Arende 100% (laughs) you just gotta have that Stallone arm just beans him. It's so funny because you just watch the guy. <laughs> and I mean, he like, was out the moment the thing hit him. And and the best part too was, you know, Stallone initially walks out and he's like, he turns to his driver, he's like, "You got a tire iron?" And the guy's like, "Yeah, I think I got one." And he goes, "Hold on, this'll do." And he just grabs the aluminum water bottle. And the best is the That's driver's like, soup. "Hey, I was gonna drink that." Yeah. Yeah. Like, where's my water bottle? There's blood on it. You don't want it anymore. <laughs> it was just, it was, it was the perfect little vignette of like dark hilarity, right? Mm-hmm. You know, because you're sitting there, you're like, I know what he'd do with a tire iron. I 100% know what would happen there. But this is just perfect, right? Like, the most nonsense item he could have picked up, like, the only way I think you could have made that even funnier is if he couldn't find the tire iron, but found the jack. <laughs> and just wailed on him with just the jack, right? No, I think the tire iron flying through the air like a ninja star would have been hilarious too. Or the jack flying through the air, that would have been funny too. I just, yeah, like- I love the guy just... Yeah, but he would have needed, he would have needed a lot down. more than, than Advil to 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 cure from either of those so i think i think he realized that the water bottle would have been effective yet not to the point where he's going back to prison all right so i think we're all in agreement tulsa king's awesome i'm glad we picked it up and i look forward to watching the rest of it uh, as as the weeks progress but unfortunately coming to a close in two weeks i hate to say it but it needs to be said is of course the best sci-fi on television right now 
And that is Amazon's original, The Peripheral. Oh boy, where do we begin with this week's awesome episode? I really love how the exposition dumps in this show aren't boring. Like, that's how it, it's it's not, you know, super fast. Oh, hey, we got to get to this next thing. It's, okay, you know something's coming. They set up the anticipation that, oh, hey, the operators are needed. But then they slow it down a little bit with some more exposition moments and some character building. And then they, you know, pick it back up. So, but that's just my opinion. Guys, what do you think of Peripheral still at this point after uh, six episodes? I didn't think they could top the previous episode. I thought having that big fight between uh, Finn and the uh, the boss lady was going to be like a high point that they weren't going to match. And here they go. They beat it. They whooped it. This, even the exposition dumps, didn't feel like exposition dumps. They felt like natural story progression that only afterwards you go, oh, wait a minute. They filled in a whole bunch of stuff here, here, and here. And it just worked it just worked so perfectly we've realized now that the sheriff is in the pocket of the guy who runs the the town we've got the the master assassin here trying to get away from them to get out of what would be a pretty screwed up scenario to wake up in like i just imagine that scenario playing out and i'd be i wouldn't talk either not because I didn't have something to say, but because I'd be so dumbfounded by the scenario, I wouldn't know what exactly to say. And, um, you know, we've got that. We've got, we're starting to see now how members of the, the militia team, I want to call them, um you know, interact and deal with each other and deal with problems that they all have and that they can share the emotional load of trauma across team members to try to help other members deal with it. Or entirely give it away. Yeah. And that's, I mean, look, having somebody in the family in my family that has really severe PTSD because of experiences that occurred. You know, I honestly feel like that would be such a gift to somebody who's experiencing that. And I totally buy and understand why our character didn't necessarily want to do that to somebody else because they know how traumatic it is. They know how painful it is. And yet his brothers are in arms are sitting there going, no, it's okay. I can take this for you for now. I can help you carry that pack. And that's, that's what I've always really admired about guys who serve. They'll do that for each other. And if they had the ability to do this for each other now, you know, they absolutely would. I, I, I think that's what this episode really did a great thing, especially now that you're painting it all out like that, Corion. Is this episode and this show as a whole has acknowledged that aside from like the paraplegic who's lost most of his limbs, all the rest of the brothers that are in the militia are basically the same dude. 
like that they, they all basically have the same feelings same emotions but then who's the one that goes to like help him with his ptsd it's one of the guys we haven't met very well yet we haven't gotten to know hardly at all but the to me i just got this really hardcore feeling that like it, he was the the texan the guy who's always having a good time but it's also always there for you when you're having a bad time and like like it really felt like because you can't introduce these characters as different because basically they all talk the same they all think the same they all work the same they all think about the same things it's really hard to make these people different but then we <laughs> and they're all the... yeah and they're all hooked up to each other so they're literally thinking the same things feeling the same things and but then to see that this other part of the team his big portion to the team is being able to take the emotional pain because he didn't grow up with it. He grew up like, it, I, and this is all headcanon, but it really felt like it was trying, like this is what they were trying to portray. Is like, this guy grew up cream of the crop, good family, healthy family, joined the military like any good person that feels like they need to serve does. Did, got screwed up, but he still has always had a solid foundation in his life, so it doesn't mess him up emotionally or mentally as hard. And then his brother, who didn't have that background, couldn't handle his emotions. He was there, and he just said, I'll take it, brother. And you watch him crumple to the pain and just take it. And he gets up. When he's done, he just gets up and walks away. He doesn't go, man, that sucked. I'm sorry Like you're going through that. He doesn't say sorry for it at all because he knows sorry doesn't help. He just goes, I got you, ow, and walks on. And and has such a beautiful, like, whole character that didn't have anything until this episode. But now he feels like if he dies in the next episode, I'm going to cry. Because of his, like, willingness to just own that. His willingness to be so good. Even though, like, technically any of them, Burton could have done it. And if Burton had done it, I'd have been like, all right, cool. Burton's cooler than I thought he was. But no, for another random person in the team to do that, and now, like, I, like, like I just got connected to that guy in the span of that scene. Like, I, yeah. I felt like I, I made up this whole headcanon, you know? All in that one scene. That's good writing to me. <laughs> and, I mean, I don't know how much experience you guys have had with guys who have had pretty severe bouts of ptsd but the pieces that always sit with me are the after effects when another member of a team will come over and sit down and just sit beside them and go okay so where were you and just try to have them talk it out to try to take some of that forum and that's what i was seeing there i don't know who on the writing staff served but you really get the impression that somebody did because it's really only more than one. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's really somebody who's served, who would know how to write that scene that way. Well, and it it is based off of a book and I don't know anything about the author personally. And that's probably something we should look up and look into since we probably are going to do it. Well, I don't know. William Gibson. I'm not spoiling myself. Gibson didn't serve. Okay. I know I know William Gibson's writing very, very well. 
and I know I, I've watched multiple interviews with him. Yeah, you know, I was just thinking, uh, you know, John asked me for an excuse to get rid of you, and I'm sorry, John, it's just not happening. I know you want to bring your buddies in. No, I'm just kidding. We have room on this panel. Give us a send us an email, thewriterbrothers at gmail.com. Um, but uh, okay, yeah, no, that's why we keep you here, Corion, because uh, that's that's good to know. So you have more, you have more knowledge of his writing style and his background. And so, okay, he didn't serve. So then, all right, I uh, stand corrected. Please continue. Yeah, well, I, I was just going to say, actually, for those who are ever interested, um, there was a little nothing show in like a, a one channel Ontario broadcasting company in the late 80s. They ran this show called Prisoners of Gravity. If you ever get the chance, grab as many episodes as you can find because it tried to present itself as imagine if someone was doing a book talk show, but for comic books and genre. And that has some fantastic interviews with Gibson, with Gaiman, with with Kim Stanley Robertson. All the giants of the Silver Age of sci-fi writing have done interviews with this show. So it's really worth checking out if you get the opportunity. That's phenomenal to check out and useful for any writers out there needing inspiration from actual writers. Yeah, if you guys want like a masterclass from the experts in the genres of like the arguably what I would it's not today's science fiction but it's I would say the previous generation of writers this is the place to go pick it up I mean the the title sounds like it was written by an emo millennial but uh, I mean it's it's technically true Uh, well Prisoners of Gravity was well Prisoners um, of Gravity man it all sucks here on planet earth man sorry that's just how it comes off no it, it actually okay so it's actually kind of funny because the the pretense of the show is this guy built a rocket ship got uh, his rocket ship impacted a space station in orbit and now he's stuck on this space station with all this you know comic book right like info and he's doing broadcasts so it's like the premise of like mystery science theater 3000 almost but yeah. for a book talk show so it it works um, it's not as pretentious as you think it is, but it's so well done. No, and I don't, I don't, it's just, like I said, the, the, the title, that's like something I'd expect to see in, in some, you know, middle schoolers poetry or something. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah. you know, we're prisoners of gravity and it's like, well, duh, but you don't have to come off so bleak about it. Jeez. Oh, and it 100% looks like a YouTube channel before YouTube existed. Like I'm warning you now, like there's no production value. But that's that almost what makes familiar. it good. <laughs> they that's stole so my idea awesome. retroactively. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> no, but it's worth checking out. So, yeah. Um, and that's how I know so much about William Gibson. But getting back to this show, not only that, but we got a new character as well. We got an inspector from the Metro Police. And she's an interesting one, isn't she? Yeah. Yeah, she, uh... 
I did not. That's the one thing I hated about this episode. I was waiting because she just felt like this straight up, like uh, Sherlock Holmes type character. And the moment we get to see her use her Sherlockness, credits. I was like, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> I was waiting. I want because like we'd never met her before, and then she just starts killing the scene. Like everything about her is a good character, good acting, and then it just done. Like that—that's the cliffhanger that I will never call a bad thing, but will definitely declare the worst part of watching a show. <laughs> I and, hate that. When they're that good, you're like, no, that's a perfectly written cliffhanger. Still hate that I'm hanging off a cliff. I will also say that the the Watson to the inspector's homes was just the right amount of cheeky, though, wasn't she? Mm. <laughs> like, yeah. and kudos to that actress. Presented in the right way, yeah. Major kudos. Yeah, Arendi so writes in, go for it. Arendi writes in, Tat Chief inspector was disturbing was getting a screaming inquisition vibe which shines a light on how things are in that show's future yeah i I think you're absolutely right like you definitely immediately understood that this woman is a threat to everything going on and that's what made her kind of fantastic in a lot of ways well and and then i mean not to distract from the character, but also I just want to make sure we touch on the fact that, as it turns out, they're living in, you know, a dystopian future that's run down and gross, a lot like present-day Detroit. And yet it's all covered up with images of of fake stuff that's not even there. And there's they no are. real people. And then it's, it's all like, wow. I mean, it's so much more bleak than it already looks. And, and that was was quite uh quite a revelation there. there i i also don't know if you guys caught what i would argue is one of the most important lines we got in this entire episode which was finn asking if this is what they're allowing us to see they're covering up what are they hiding from us and isn't that like the perfect summation of like the thought we're supposed to walk away from from this series and not just the summation but like the potential like because of the way they're setting like this is the second this is the third to last episode and we're just now asking that question because like everything we've seen so far we're just like how did this happen and then it turns out it didn't most of it's all just ar and then you're like wow that's kind of cheap and then AI. You're like, wait a minute no ar artificial no, AR. reality oh their eyes are doing augmented artificial reality, reality but i didn't realize augmented. ar was what they yeah augmented they those like whatever's messing with their eyes and then they did the little thumb thing, and then that's how they turned down how much the the screen was being shown, and that's how we found out most of it was under scaffolding. And so, like, yeah, I guess yeah, and what projects reality, all that artificial? Well, that's that's the eye thing. Is like they're like I really got uh, altered carbon 
in that first scene when he puts the uh, when she puts the thing in his head and it turns off all the ads. The st- no, the the the. Oh the yeah! Stack, oh, the, the ad block Omni. for the stack. Yeah. For the well, no, for the Omni, the Omni Eye tool that they use, the Omni tool, I think is what it's called. Um, and it's their like it's their phone, their phone that's in their bodies. Same with like uh, the what's the one with Blade Runner. Blade Runner, where they have some form of augmented reality. Like, a lot of it, it's... People just skip over glasses nowadays. They're just straight to, we're going to mess with your eyeball. As if humans are going to be like, yeah, dude, just screw up my vision permanently. Or don't. Or well, maybe. I mean, I, I think... Know, I'm in I think in the case reality. of... I think in the case of Altered Carbon, that's all actually manipulated through the stack, though. So, that that makes sense. But you're you're definitely not wrong. They, they do... There seems to be a, a pattern in current sci-fi where it's like, oh yeah, we're just gonna shove crap in your eyeballs. Don't worry about it; it'll be fine. Like, no, I think I'm well, good. I saw that Futurama episode. I'm not. Well, I'm not doing that. I saw the <laughs> surgery in the first episode of Peripheral. I'm good. I'm not, I'm not doing that either. I'll yeah. wear glasses forever. I. <laughs> <laughs> I don't care well, what they tell me the process is. I wear I wear sunglasses nice. at night for a YouTube show. I'm really not above looking like a dork for the rest of my life. I mean, come on. Well, I, I'm about to squeak all of y'all out, but because of some stuff that happened to me, I actually had some damage inside my eyes. And the only way to fix it was every couple of weeks I had to go down to a hospital to get an injection directly into my eye to fix it. Now, fun How fact for the record. Subway? Uh, didn't. Um, hey, uh, you know, that's still probably less painful than having to watch Star Trek Discovery, though. It was absolutely less painful than watching Discovery. And I got to wear a cool ki- uh, eye patch and look like White Nick Fury. But anyway. Um, this is what... starting to sound better and better. I don't know why I'm not getting my eye injected on a daily basis. Right. But um, for the record, though, I just want to put this out there. The doctor I had had a very ashen gray complexion and because of the glasses he wore he had very very big eyes in order to do the injections they actually have to strap you down to the chair and they got a bright light down on you so if i ever complain about alien abduction dreams you know exactly where they come from that's hilarious Yeah, you know, I always, growing up, I was like, I don't understand why the dentist is so scary. And then I went to the dentist and found out, oh, this looks like they try to make it look as horrible as possible. And then they put some, you know, lovely music in the background. Or my favorite was being handed a remote to a crappy tube TV that was in in the corner over there. But of course, I'm, you know, lean back over here. And they're like, oh, hey, you want to watch some cartoons? And I'm like, yeah, I do. But I can't, or sorry, oh, well, I can't. Because, you know, well, they, they, the I, TV is positioned in the worst possible spot for that. I See, I think for me and the dentist, uh, our mom actually helped me out the best. She planned all of those for the first hour of the school morning. And I, I've never slept as good as I've slept in a dentist chair. Like... I pass out almost immediately. I've actually been like talked to by like I think it was the uh, braces people because you'd go in there for like 15 minutes at a time, and I would fall asleep while waiting for the doctor to come in. They're like, "Hey, we can't have you falling asleep because like we can't get your mouth open." <laughs> but so like, no, I've never seen has... them as scary. I was just too tired to be scared. <laughs> yeah, Sorende has a, a really good one here. 
yeah, I'm really leery of augmented reality implants. The idea of someone else being able to control what I perceive, the potential for abuse is staggering. Hard to imagine the worst nightmare scenario. Look, I am absolutely in favor of a pair of glasses for augmented reality so that I can put it on and take a look at whatever they're trying to show me through the augmented reality. And I've gotten a chance to play with some of those features. They're really cool. You look over at, say, the toy store, and it gives you a rundown of the inventory in the toy store, so you know whether you're going in to pick up something or not. You go over, you look at a restaurant, and it shows you how busy the restaurant is. You can decide whether you want to go get a table or whatnot and book it ahead of time. These are great ideas. There is an absolute logical use for this hardware. But I agree with Arende, the problem is when you don't have the opportunity to shut it off. Yeah, and I've had my fair share of discussions with uh, with people. Uh, Arende writes in, Glasses, sure. Implants, that makes things so real as to be indistinguishable. No. Um, I'm with you there, man, because I've, I've had people... I've had these arguments before who are like, Oh, oh, you know... You don't want a chip injected into you because you're afraid they're going to track you? Oh, what's your cell phone? <laughs> My cell phone, just like these glasses, comes off. I set it down. I can go about my business. Right now, right now, this very second, if I wanted to, I could leave my phone behind and piss off into the mountains. They're not going to be able to track me out there because I'd have left my phone behind. So, well, yeah. And because you learned from Jack Reese, or Reese, James Reese. How easy to decide from the cops in the mountains. <laughs> right, right, yeah. The Ryder Brothers teaching <laughs> you how to disappear. <laughs> that's, that's right. I'm going to have that on my phone. Ah, shit. So I can't watch it while I'm trying to escape. Yeah, that, then they're going to find and, me with the phone. So and I'm on Rogue Council, what happens when you do disappear in the woods? Well, we don't if tell you, you what happens when you disappear. <laughs> Just all the possibilities. Oh, are, yeah, are we go. are we going to have some, uh, some survivalist training with Cameron instead on Saturday? Because that would just be no, awesome. No, no. On Saturday, we are going to be talking about the mystical shenanigans going on in Hollywood. Everything from the rumored horrible, horrible stories about Lady Gaga to some of the really crazy Shadow War stuff going on uh, even today in the mystical community in Hollywood. It's going to be a show you are not going to want to miss. Yeah. Arende Arende writes writes in, in. Go for it, John. Anyone who knows what hyperfantasia is would understand, and so everyone is going to learn what hyperfantasia is, is the condition of having extremely vivid mental imagery. It is the opposite condition to a fantasia where mental visual imagery is not present. The experience of hyperfantasia is more common than aphantasia and has been described as vivid as real seeing yeah so basically um, augmented reality but because your brain's funny yeah and for the record there are people like myself that can actually force it to happen while you're going through stuff so i can walk down a street but perceive the street is walking through a forest when i choose to so it's not is it possible a to learn this power? Skill. Yes, absolutely. It's totally. Now try that again. Let's try that again. Is it possible to learn this power? Not for a Jedi. Oh well. Anyway, um, 
Yeah, no, so they've got lots of augmented reality in the future because the future is bleak and horrible like the present, and uh, it, it's, it, yeah. Which, but uh, I feel like this show does such a great, like, I think that's where Altered Carbon really goofed it, is Altered Carbon makes it seem more like, yeah, this is just the new iPhone, whereas this goes, yeah, we all remember the Jackboxes. We all know what the dystopia is. We need a distraction so we can focus on making it as better as we can, but we know we can't because there's so much infrastructure and like 20 of us. Like that was the big reveal to me when they turned off the other people. I was like, okay, now it explains why they don't have a problem with crime in a normal sense. Now it explains why all of these people aren't freaking out when they break the algorithm. And now it explains like why there would have so much vested in stubs because like if they were living like 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 to me it seems like they're the they're following the one world order or the new world order or the government world government right where they're like if we cut the population we'll all be just vibing and having the greatest time ever and then this show comes along and it's like no no you need well, augmented reality to have a moderately okay time and even then you're still gonna literally be trying to get to the past you know it actually reminds me of an interesting saying because uh this was one i used to see all the time was in the 60s stuff was too real so they took stuff to see different to see you know fantastic stuff now in the modern day things are so fantastic that we take stuff so that things feel normal well that's kind of what they're doing here is you know in the past they're using virtual reality because regular reality is so boring now they're living in virtual reality and trying to make it as normal as possible that to me i feel like normally i would call that a just a weak premise that you know you're you're arendi writes in real quick uh, Arendi writes in, depopulating the world would be the greatest time ever. Calm down there, Cotton Schwab. Yeah, Cotton Schwab is the one I was thinking of. And Cotton Schwab is the guy that's like, I'm going to own everything and you guys aren't going to own anything and you're going to be happier for it. And Which, uh, by the way, that's no. Well, not just by the way. Like, bro, watch Peripheral. Obviously, we're not. Like, like if you're going to play accusing us of how our futures are going to go, like, read the writings of people that actually imagine futures and see if your choices and your word choices are appropriate. I, Cotton Schwab, you're, you act like you got all of this you will, and You, you are the one who will own nobody speak. and you will be happy. You will own nothing. I will own everything. And uh, you're going to have a good time because I said so. And yeah, that's truth- what King James said. King Henry said that too. Well, the people you know, always revolt against the tyrants, Cotton Schwab. Don't be stupid. Yeah, and, and here's what I'm going to say. I mean, look, the truth of the matter is, as much as some people may think we we need and want less people, and to a certain extent, I mean, we should try to limit ourselves to the carrying capacity of the planet. But the truth of the matter is, without people around, humans don't do well. We need random dudes to hang out with we need to feel like part of a larger community and when we don't have that as a rule humans don't do great 
and and we need communities to compare our community against yeah we need mile markers objectives to hit like one of the things i think has been lost for america is like we're constantly like we don't want to be run by tyrants but none of us in the last 240 years remember what that's like exactly but then if you go over i mean if you go work for amazon you might get an and yeah exactly like jeff bezos is the perfect example he grew up in america learning about the fallacies of tyranny and then became one of the world's largest tyrants and still acts like he's a good person like i recently saw that he's supposedly pledging a few hundred billion to charities and it's like bro why don't you just you know pay your employees a living wage that's more charitable than any charity could ever be and no and no don't is- pay them a living wage make amazon the most attractive place to work open start at $30 an hour have lines and this is the biggest problem and I mean I guess we're going to derail a little bit and talk about the economy no actually no it's not derailing we're talking about a show that's in Amazon the future paid for this project you're, you're right <laughs> this is the, the future Bezos is writing yeah, right now that's like, right Cotton, Schwab and Bezos probably hang out at the same sex parties where they pretend like old people yeah no it's it's uh it, it it's it's this is really any business watch. This is basically if people are businesses are struggling to find people in the United States. I don't know how it is in Canada, but in the United States, our economy is in a we're in a huge turning point state of flux where the slave class is tired of being the slave class. And so 1% unemployment and the companies can't seem to find employees. Yeah. Yeah, that's because you've got it you got two options. One you either pay enough to put up with your BS or two, you make that place of work way better than being at home. Those are your options to start with. And and so it's like at Amazon, you're right. They could very easily start at $30 an hour. And then you're going to have applicants all the way lined up, wrapped around the fulfillment center to get in there. And then well, and you're going to have the precision of the North Pole from the Santa Claus trilogy, because the more people are paid, the more they want to pay back the people paying them. So they're going to and they're going to buy your garbage because you own everything Buy 10 well, times guys, more products because they have the money guys, to afford 10 times more. products. I, I, I might be able to help you out here because no, Canada's constitution is not the answer. No, 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 not that. I actually have a historical point to bring this back to. During the the Black Plague in Europe, just after it was the time that there was the most mobility between classes of any other point in history. Because things had so radically shifted that they didn't have a choice but to give the lower class more access to more um, and more opportunity because they didn't have another option. Could it be that even though the the cur- you know the previous situation that happened was not nearly as devastating humanity, be though going through the, the exact same thing where you're going to have this be either offering upward mobility like Europe did, uh, or sorry, like England did to its to its lower classes. Or are you going to wind up like France, where guillotines start getting rolled out into the middle of the street? I guess it's your call, rich or like dudes. 1762 America, when the Virginia frickin' plantation owners decided to 
quell rebellion by instituting national racism. Like, Bacon's Rebellion was a worker revolt. First and foremost, the workers that were indentured servants and indentured servitude was a as close to slavery as you could get back in those times. And then the Virginia plantation owner's response was, no, we're just going to create an entire class of people that are subhuman. And why? Because we don't want to deal with the poor. We don't want to pay the poor more. And that's where racism comes from. I guarantee it. I have yet to find a single bit of legislation in the entire world prior to the post 177 or post Bacon's Rebellion uh, papers that were written up that had slavery equal to what we know in modern day American slavery. Before then, every other version of slavery was indentured servitude. It wasn't until Virginia tobacco farmers decided to really define black people legally as subhuman that we saw the slavery that we know here in america as as well as it was the slave trade never would have ended if virginia tobacco farmers had never been that aggressive in their response to worker rebellion so kind of when ended slavery but also created modern day slavery which then had to end and end slavery in perpetuity but that's all because the rich thought that they were so smart they could just pit the poor against the poor they were right didn't work out for the nation hasn't worked out for the world but uh but they're still doing it anyway for virginia tobacco farmers well and they're they're still doing it today in the modern age i mean the u.s dollar is essentially the modern slave chain but anyway this is a discussion for the rogue council i actually want to i want to throw this last little bit in there those who don't learn from history are bound to repeat it jeffy b and cotton schwab you idiots you think you read history you think you're listening and paying attention except you're doing the exact same thing the Virginia tobacco farmers did. You're doing the exact same thing the Idaho mining companies did. You're doing the exact same thing that led to the monopolization of the railroad industry and the collapse of the railroad industry, which is still having worker issues 150 years later because you're so stupid that you won't listen to history. Don't think you're smart. Just because you have a billion dollars, you're an idiot. Your dude, they're still doing the same nothing. thing the French so nobility stupid. did. I mean, Hell yeah, wow. dude. Bourgeoisie, yeah. you guys are literally repeating your own actions leading to Stalin, leading to Hitler, leading to every modern issue that plagues society. That was you, Richie Rich. Tired of you guys pretending like you're smart just because you got dollar bills. You obviously have no fucking sense. Well... <laughs> They have some right. sense because they are delivering us the peripheral, so that's some money well spent. Um, I wouldn't say that that I wouldn't underestimate the enemy though and call them outright idiots. Not because oh, you no. know I'm scared, but mainly because I recognize that they're not Ignorance that stupid. Is the most malicious force in history. Ignorance of outcome, ignorance yeah. of decision, a- anyway, leads to what. We- we, been created. we do have a track here on this show, and so we, we got to get back on it. Arende writes in, feeding people bugs. This could be thought of as an easy source of protein until you look up the research. Chitin, bug exoskeleton, is highly carcinogenic, spine cancer. 
and the stuff can't be filtered out. Well, that's also one of the reasons I personally don't eat bacon, but that's, again, another conversation for another time. Um, another topic for the Rogue Council, supposedly somebody used Chitin to actually build a hovercraft. Hmm. Weird. Oh, that's an okay. interesting... That, that wouldn't make... The weirdest part about it, when you look up, knowing that the person is directly above you on the craft, you can't see him or the craft. Anyway, we've definitely promoted uh, promoted Saturday's Rogue Council more than enough on this show today. Uh, but I will... Uh, oh, chitin. Oh, oh. The K use of the word CH. Okay. Yeah. Or of the CH. Uh, I forgot what the actual technical term for that was. Um... So yeah, any final thoughts on this week's peripheral? I mean, I'm 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 next week's going to be rough for me because you know, we know that I've, we're probably going to get slapped with a with a with a cliffhanger of all cliffhangers and you know, on top of the fact that we you know, I'll only have one more episode left, that depression is just going to compound itself like, man, why do we only get 8 episodes? We couldn't get a 10 for this one. Come on. Ah. Uh, Yo. I know this whole story started with Alita. I still have no idea anything about her actual choices. Like, like we, we have everybody's assumptions about her convictions. I don't know anything about her. And I realized just now that like, that's how good this show is, is like they can drop lines that you know are the most important thread throughout the whole season. And you can ignore it with all of this other information going on. And then when you think about it, you're like, no, they actually have been trying to tell me what she's doing. I just can't hear it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I love it. Arende says, my thought, great as usual, creepy inspector. I thought the inspector character was a, was a, was an interesting choice, and I do like the way that's going. But uh, all right, John, you can have inspector... one last thought, and then we're moving on to DS9. <laughs> I think the inspector's more creepy based on what they're potentially capable of. But as far as how they're talking, I'm getting really cool hand light like if uh the guy from sherlock holmes the main actual uh detective if he was sherlock holmes that's what i'm getting from her is like somebody that's actually government authority was sherlock holmes well and that's, and that's what makes her like sinister and total creep vibes but also like really cool as a character yeah all right, so this week uh, we kind of changed up our DS9 homework. So if you watch both episodes, you'll have to wait for the next episode next week because, man, after watching Duet for, like, I think the fifth time or however many times I've watched it, oh, boy, this one still just holds its own. Um, I will go ahead with a synopsis, and then possible future guest panelist H. Marie wrote a review because she liked the episode so much and wanted to contribute to the show. So I've given her the option to, on days that she can't show up, to uh, write reviews on stuff. And she gave us one for duet. But first, let's do the storyline so everyone knows what we're talking about. Amon Maritza, a Cardassian suffering from Kalinora, turns to DS9 for, medic for medical attention. Major Kira Norris immediately recognizes the disease. He could only have contracted it when an accident occurred in the labor camp Galatep on Bajor during the Cardassian occupation. Kira herself helped liberate the camp and knows of the atrocities Camp Commander Galdor Heel committed. She is determined to convict Maritza for war crimes. The Cardassian first denies having Kalonora, then claims he was only fi a filing clerk. 
With Bajor wanting to convict him and Cardassia wanting his release, Sisko faces a tough decision, then photographic evidence arrives. Wow, that was actually a pretty good, somewhat spoiler-free um, That was actually well synopsis. done. Yeah. yeah, I feel like that was entirely spoiler-free. Yeah, that was actually a pretty good one. All right, so to start Credit us words off, do IMDb. To start us off and joining the panel in spirit is H. Marie. Duet was very was a very interesting episode. Not only did it have themes that are pertinent to our lives and current times, it also showed that even if you couldn't do anything to help at the time, you can always help later in a different form. The main subject of this episode was a curious one. He was a filing clerk. He never lied about that. He wanted to help the Bajorans however he could, but being Cardassian, he could do nothing to help. Since he couldn't help them then, he decided to take it upon himself now to bring some justice to those who were lost. He went through reconstructive surgery to look like the man that was in charge of the labor camp, Galdar Heel. He knew this man had died prior and took this advantage to make himself Darheel. This man wanted to take on the face of one of the most hated criminals of Bajor, so that he could sacrifice himself for both Bajor's healing and to rebuild Cardassia. He couldn't stop the atrocities that he had that he heard, but that didn't stop him from trying to make th- make things right for all. Kira's part in this scenario was fascinating. She knew who this man was since she liberated the camp. When DS9 received the picture from the camp and they discovered who the man was and also was not, there was a lot of confusion as to what was going on. Why would this man say he is someone who he clearly is not, and then admit that he is Darheel, and that he has to pay, or that he is there to pay for his crimes? Kira knew that something was up with this man, but she couldn't figure it out. She did her job despite what prejudices she has or had. In the end, Kira learned that race is just that race, and what's on the inside is what matters in the end. She learned that the man that she had accused was entirely innocent, and she knew that he shouldn't pay for crimes that he didn't fully commit. Unfortunately, our Cardassian friend didn't make it as a Bajoran took it upon themselves to kill him and get what he thought was retribution. He killed an innocent man. We as a society should learn from this episode. Just because a person did you wrong in the past doesn't mean that you shouldn't trust another person in the future. The person who wronged you may have done it for reasons you may not know, but had good intentions behind their actions. We do not have to take on the mistakes of others to make up for our own failures. We must learn from the mistakes of others to better the future for all. Completely spoiler-ridden, but perfect. Well, succinct. we we are Uh, not spoiling a 30-year-old show. That we we, we give we give our fans heads up while we're watching. I know the synopsis gives it away, but we also are going to give it away anyway. So, well, no, no, I think her review was a a a more enlightened synopsis of the episode, and and also just on the money as far as the the finer. Yeah. So, to me. This is Deep Space Nine showing what Deep Space Nine can really be in terms of the writing, in terms of the acting, everything. This is what, you know, if you slept through the first, most of the first season, this is when you stopped and woke up. Because they took the 
abstract concept of the the occupation of Bajor and suddenly made it real and suddenly made it visceral and we wound up feeling like we were watching something akin to either um, the interviews before the Nuremberg trials to the interview in Silence of the Lambs. It was somewhere in between there and both metaphors work for this situation because you know um, Maritza or Dark Healer, whoever you want to believe him to be really makes you think he is the monster that we believe him to be. He takes the interview and turns it around on Kira and almost as if he's putting her on trial for existing while she is trying to figure out exactly how many things he's guilty of. And his response pretty much goes, no, I'm guilty of all of it. Not just what you think, but more. Give me more. And she was all too willing. This was expertly done. And it also gives you a little bit of an insight almost into the Cardassian mind. Because we're starting to realize that the Cardassians are a level of game player beyond the normal mustache twirling villainy here. They plan this stuff out. Even when they're trying to potentially do the right thing, there are wheels within wheels within wheels spinning here. And every, you know, uh, plan is a plot within a plot within a plot within a trap. And that's what we get to see on display beautifully. We have characterization of Bajor and Bajorans and what they're going through and them trying to put their world together after it has been shattered by an occupation to uh, character building for the Cardassian people, you know, showing how unbelievably tactically intelligent they are and yet at the same time still very much people right and that's one of the things i think that this episode does well as well as it shows the cardassians as monsters but as people as well and you're not really sure whether you want to admonish this man or pity him or some combination of the two the entire way through the episode. And that's, I think, what made this episode great. is because it lingers with you. It sits in your soul. Yeah, there's uh, another series we could definitely watch and cover, well, well into the future. Because right now our throwback list is <laughs> piling up fast. Um, but there's a scene in Band of Brothers that really stuck out to me the most. And I think this episode can really, uh, really be supported by it. Because this episode, unfortunately, in recent years has come under some criticism from, we'll just say, lesser educated folks for uh, Nazi sympathization. Which isn't really the case here. And I'll explain why. Um... What people need to understand is while for whatever reason history wants to try to paint um, the, the Third Reich as something that was the most evilest evil that ever existed, even though it was really the Rising Sun Empire that was all those horrible things, the truth of the matter is 
they were just a lot of those people. For more info, people. check out Time Suck. Yeah, um, there's a lot of there's a lot of misunderstanding of how the chain of command works, of how the need to know works. And the scene in Band of Brothers really sticks out where, where the guy asked, I'd like to address my men. And he's basically praising them for having fought a good war and y'all did it for your country. And that's when you start to realize that this is this is the real brutality of warfare is that both sides think they're the good guys. And especially when it came to Germany at the time, those soldiers had no clue what was going on with the with the camps. They were not informed of things. They were given uh, they were told that that the US this evil country is coming to, to destroy the 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 Germans right to ascension and you also got to understand the things that led up to World War II Germany were things like the Treaty of Versailles that mistreated them. And so it's easy for people to get all patriotic and 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 stuff for that. And so that's that's what happens. Well, that's kind of what we see on display with Maritza is he's a filing clerk. He's not even the bad guy, but he ended up over time having to live with that that atrocity. He started to feel like he was actually the bad guy. And some might argue just because he's Cardassian, he is. Well, the truth of the matter is, no, he's not. He's he's just messed up in the head and he has no idea how to deal with or cope with what happened and so he takes it upon himself to fall on that sword in front of everybody on Bajor and so that's and, and that's really what this episode is it's showing the other guys who were not in a position to do anything and really showing that no they were Maritza was messed up by the occupation as well he was messed up by the fact that he was powerless to do anything to stop anyone's uh, tre- you know anyone's in in the atrocity and unfortunately that's the reality for a lot of uh, the germans that were in those positions was there there was nothing they could realistically do because they were under the impression that oh if i do anything to stop uh if i do anything to stop this i'm just gonna get killed and it's not just you that's gonna get killed it's you're gonna get killed your family's gonna get killed everybody else that you knew is going to get killed just to set the example exactly that's the fear porn that they've injected into it and that's the same thing with the Cardassians and that's why that's why this episode really is an excellent uh, it's an excellent allegory all around because of the the, the examples you gave Corion and it really it, it it paints the picture of it's just well Samaritan says it best. If it was just good guys and bad guys, everyone would know what to do and we'd all know what's right and what's wrong. But the truth of the matter is the capacity for good and evil resides in every single one of us individually. And that's what we really see on display here is he's trying to atone for the evil that Galdar Heel committed to try to better things. And yet, and, and so his intentions are pure, but it just doesn't quite stick the landing, so... Yeah, I mean, to those people that basically said that are going to go on and say that, you know, everybody who fought for the Axis powers in World War II is inherently the most evil person alive. I would make this counter argument. By that logic, you know, the Americans have done some pretty dark stuff in their time. Does that mean you're, if you're American, does that mean you're the bad guy? And if you're the bad guy, why aren't you solving the problem, right? It's and, it, it's more nuanced than that. It's more subtle than that. And we have to be willing to look at 
the individual and say, yeah, these individual people were pretty terrible. But, you know, there were a lot of people who were just stuck in the situation and did what they could to survive like anyone else would. Yeah, and that's why that's why for me personally, this is why, you know, I'm I'm pretty much moving on from from political and religious tribalism, because at the end of the day, I don't own the sins and atrocities of Christians of the past. I don't own the sins and atrocities of Christians of the future. Same goes for Americans. Same really just goes for anything. I exist. I am responsible for me and my actions. And that's what I will atone for. But I'm not going to atone for something else. Just, you know, you trace my family lineage. If it turns out, even if I'm related to like Hitler and Stalin somehow, I'm not apologizing. I have nothing to apologize for. I didn't do those things. I'm not going to do those things. That's how we move forward. And that's, that's why, you know, that's why I can't stand the lectures and all the movies and shows and stuff. That's, we brought it up earlier. Tulsa King does a good job of addressing these social issues in a dignified manner. That's just straightforward and to the point. And it doesn't necessarily try to preach. And that's how it's supposed to go. Whereas instead we have a lot of other problems and we have a lot of just it's virtue signaling. It's emotionally charged. Arende writes in the internet of today masses with that kind of propaganda or messes with that kind of propaganda. I get the impression that it makes some people unhappy. There we go. Yeah. That's part of it. Um, Rende also writes in, heck, there's a story of a BF-109 escorting a crippled B-17 out of Germany. Not all Germans were evil in World War II. It was heavily concentrated in the upper echelons. That's And that's how it goes in any kind of war and, situation. And even then, it's like ridiculously nuanced even in the upper echelons. You take a look at uh, Rommel. Rommel is like the textbook example. Literally, he found himself driving on the wrong side of the the battle lines wound up in an allied hospital walked in realized they were low on supplies got directions as to which way to go left and then sent back trucks of german medical supplies to an allied medical hospital because simply put it was the right thing to do right and and this all ties back to my original rant about not paying attention to history it's the rich the upper echelons of Germany, they were the richest people in Germany that A, weren't suffering from anything that the Treaty of Versailles had thrown upon them. They they were still running BMW, Volkswagen, all of their Mercedes. Like they, they didn't actually care. They didn't have a good bone in their body. What they had was, I'm losing money because German products are considered World War One offenders and that's why I'm losing money. Therefore, I need to change the tides, so I will fund the guy that's going to make Germany look good. Oh, he made Germany look so good, they look entirely tyrannical and evil. I'll just remove planes from my manufacturing process and still sell Mercedes for the next hundred years. Yeah. Like, the rich are not good. And well, hold on now. No, hold on. No, no, no. We literally just have a, We literally just had an episode about prejudice, and now you're airing a bunch of nonsense prejudice. We need to be clear. Specific rich people are cannot no. are not specifically good. There are certain people what that are, are bad with their money, and there, there are other people to, that are not. There was there was more people. There was more to go with that. The reason why I say the rich are not good inherently, just because they have money doesn't mean they deserve it, doesn't mean they earned it, and doesn't mean they're going to spend it properly. 
And that's, if anything, that's what this show is like, this episode is really teaching us. Because it wasn't Galdar Hill who decided to own his failures. It was his file clerk who knew that Cardassian needed to be put on the galactic stage as a galactic offender. But the only person that would bring that much galactic media, if you will, was Galdar Hill, not Galdar Hill's file clerk. Not the guy who actually cried while those other people suffered, the guy who caused the suffering. But that guy died a hero's death on Cardassia. And Cardassia never said sorry. So his whole goal was to remind Cardassia, no, you did something wrong. You know you did. You're lying to the entire galaxy and you're pretending like you can cover it up and maintain trade negotiations with the Federation like nothing ever happened. And you need to suffer for that. And that I think is what the same thing goes to today. It wasn't just Hitler who led Germany. It wasn't the emperor of the rising sun who led the empire of the rising sun. It was the rich. It was the aristocracy who wanted to maintain their money. They wanted to maintain their earnings, maintain their production. And so they were willing to sacrifice their workers, your workers, and everybody's workers, as long as their bottom line was satisfied. It, I mean, war has always been a, and a it, fight and against the rich, putting the workers in there. It's all it's ever been. Well, yeah, it's, as, I, be. as, I, as I say it, and oh, sorry, Curion, do you have a... Yeah, I was going to say, and remember, too, it's not just a left or a right thing, right? I mean, do you think when Stalin put in a terrible policy that caused the starvation of hundreds of millions of people, he went without a meal? Or Mao? No, guys. <laughs> you know, you think he shed a tear after signing that document? Yeah. Yeah, you know? and, and, and John, I can also back up your stance a little bit. Um, but but just this with some Jesus logic. And of course, that is um, for those of you who know your Bible, you know that Jesus said greater chance does a camel have to pass through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. But I want to put emphasis real quick on that phrase greater chance. Now, the reason you want to articulate, because when you say just the rich, people automatically assume you're just some ungrateful communist and they don't want to listen to you. That's why you got to, that's, that's why I'm trying to encourage you to be a bit that's more articulate. Well, no, it's also kind of yours too, though, because you're also so generalizing the issue. Rich isn't good inherently. Right. And that's what I Money lead with. Money doesn't time. equal goodness. And that's what I, was, that, what I was getting there. And then you jumped in. Yeah. Cause I, you already I, lost I, me in your argument. So that's all I'm trying to get to. I'm trying to help you build your stance better here. Okay. And this, and that's why I'm responding and giving feedback the way I am is because if you want to improve your discourse and improve getting your points across, you're right. There's a lot of, a lot, we can look at the trends and we can show that, that with a certain amount of money does come a certain amount of power. And I myself am glad that I'm in the situation I'm in so I can recognize it. So in the day that, that TWB becomes a seven figure, um, uh, company you know we'll be ready for it and we'll know what not to do hopefully arende writes in the problem is greed imagine a world if one had to worry about f or if one didn't have to worry about food or no shelter if, if if no one if no. Oh, to be oh no oh gotcha thank you um 
All right, I'm just going to read that. I'm going to start over. <laughs> so it's like me recording my audiobook. Just start the, start the whole line again. The problem is greed. Imagine a world if no one had to worry about food and shelter. I think it would be a lot more difficult for this shit to happen. Then again, never underestimate the power of stupid. Money isn't good or bad. It's a tool. How it's used is what makes it good or bad. Yes, 100% agree. That's that's yeah. pretty much and, what it is. It comes down to. And that's that's to me like I think that's the the beautiful story of the Buddha. Um, I don't know if you guys are fully aware or if our audience is aware but the the story of the buddha is that he was born a king's son prince of all india and he was raised in perfection not a single thing was ever out of place for his household till one day he decided to go peruse his kingdom and he started to see how messed up it was and then that's where the buddha came from it wasn't a a king who finally like realized he needed to be more kingly no it was the king's son who knew what the king was doing was creating a myth for his son, but not for his world, for his people. He wasn't protecting the greater India population. He wasn't protecting the greater people. He was just protecting and insulating himself and his children. And when his son went out and saw that, he abandoned all of it. He's like, I'm not going to be king of this land. I don't want this land. I want them to have that land. It's their land. They're the ones that actually till the soil, do the work and make good things come i am not going to take that honor and that's why the buddha dies out as a as not a god king he's the, he's the exact opposite of a god king he was somebody who found god and decided to stay a man rather than find god and try to become a god and that to this to this episode is that that was kira it, she she went out right out the gate. He's a war criminal. He deserves to be a prosecutor. I don't care what he did. I'll find it. Let's go. And then the other Bajoran, who felt the exact same way as Kira, didn't get any of this new information. Didn't get any of the information that went down between Wouldn't the interrogation the whole it, episode. He actually had the get it. Huh? That's the best part. He he was in the prison cell before the interrogations began. But he saw he, Cardassian and said, get me out. And Odo was like, you know what? Because of what the Cardassians did to you, I will give you leniency because I understand how hard that would be for you to be in a prison cell with somebody that used to put you and your family in prisons so you can leave. Rather than what that Bajoran, the adult mature person should have done as that Bajoran was, oh, I'm going to listen to this interrogation. I'm going to see what this guy has to say. I'm going to find out who he really is and 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 then at the end if he still stabs him it's because he took the time to find out who he was stabbing and still believed they deserve to be stabbed that but doesn't instead, make it better no no not saying it makes it better i'm saying that like it changes the motivations because his motivations were racist from the jump and racist at the end but if he had taken the time to not be racist and just stayed in his cell where he was supposed to be because he too committed a crime but instead his holier than holier than thou mentality won odo over got him out of jail and then put him in position to stab this guy all because he a criminal who deserved to be in jail saw somebody who's racially criminal according to him well and said, i don't deserve to be in here i'm going to say this and i i think that this is a truism that needs to be remembered too I, I think it's safe to say that 
you know, every generation struggles with trying to figure out what is easy and what is right. And it is a lot easier to hate and hate a group than it is to take a nuanced, balanced approach and say, okay, I have my issues. I have my problems with something, but I'm going to look for the good because that's a harder path to hoe. And not everyone is ready to, to put in that kind of effort. And you know what? Uh, I deal with that a lot every day. Okay. Every day I see this. And the truth of the matter is trying to get somebody to give up hating because it's easy and get into a place of understanding that there can be light in the darkest places and there can be hope where there is the most despair is a hard thing to do. And it takes somebody willing to do it. And I understand that this person was just not ready to do it without condoning anything that they've done. I understand why they felt it was easier to hate. I don't agree with that. I feel like it's better to take a more nuanced approach and listen and learn. But and I think this episode did that. Kira yeah. was the Bajoran who listened and learned. And yep. the drunk criminal Bajoran was the criminal. Kira didn't do the stabbing. Yep. Kira even it, it and fought against it. And that's what I think that's is so what great about this episode. Is just... Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think oh, because this that... concept is so timeless is why this episode is going to linger for as long as it is and why it's actually won awards for some of the greatest sci-fi of all time. And if you think about it, the way they set it up, so you have the criminal Bajoran who's just been a drunk Bajoran his whole life, suffered what Bajor suffered, and then you have the warrior Bajoran who suffered the same suffering but suffered differently like a professional. And the whole point at the beginning of the interrogation when Kira says, I need to be on this, I feel like had she have not been on the investigation, she too would have never changed. Like she was the drunk Bajoran at the start of the episode as well. She was on his same team. She agreed with him. And then because Cisco gave her the opportunity to be lead investigator, she flipped because she took the time to listen. She didn't torture any information out of it. It caused suffering. She maintained professionalism because that's what her duty as a warrior was. And then and was able to, because I think what this episode really states is like, just because you hate something doesn't mean you're wrong to be hating something. But if you let your hate prejudge every future new action, then you're going to cause terror. You're going to cause problems. You rightfully hated this guy from the jump. You knew that he was evil. And then you find out, oh, no, he was just part of the system of evil and actually the most mundane portion of that system and therefore can't be held accountable for that system but she was him she was the drunk guy from the jump and because she listened and that's what this episode tells us is like most of us are the drunk guy most of us are the stab first ask questions later 
And yeah. because of her professionalism, she was mature enough to listen to find out, yeah, I want to stab him, but like, it's the weakest stabbing of all the stabbings we could do. Whereas the drunk was like, no, he's Cardassian. It's a good stick, good kill every time. And, and, and I think that's a huge part of war is like that, that happened with Afghanistan too, is a lot of Marines came back and they're like, no, it turns out most Afghanistan people aren't bad. They're people like you and I. But then when you go to boot camp, all you hear is kill the towel head, kill the towel head. And it, it's super racist, 100%. Not going to say it's not. And that's the problem is like you're trained in racism so that when you go to war, you have no humanity for your enemy. And that's why I hate American government. You know, like, it's it's not you don't just have to be trained in racism to be a good killer. Yeah, the, the problem is think that if you're weak minded. Well, see, and that's just it. They could teach it in in a proper form. They can say that, look, we want to dumb the enemy down so you don't hesitate. But you need to be able to make the distinction between a combatant, which you can be totally prejudiced towards because in battle you should use every motivation possible. However, that combatant is not the civilian. And you need to remember that that civilian is to be treated with respect. And so they, they probably don't do enough. But the thing is, though, they don't just do this it shit. taught in World War II. They, that wasn't taught in the Empire of the Rising Sun. That Like, all of this new stuff is pretty freaking new. So for us to hold that standard to those enemies at that time is asinine. I'm not holding that standard to those. I know you're not. I know you're not. I think that like if people try to compare this story to Nazi Germany, the the whole idea is about how do we be better despite all of the evil? Well, well, the whole premise is based off the whole premise of the Joran occupation was based off of the the Third Reich. So, I mean, so, yeah. So how do we how do we maintain a good Bajor despite an evil Cardassia? How do we be better? Well, we first recognize that Cardassia itself is an evil, but we'll get more into that later. I I would actually argue that it's not just World War II Germany that the occupation is based on. I would argue that there are, you know, inklings of apartheid. There are inklings of all kinds of, you know, you imagine a human historical suffering and you can find a, a allegory for it in an episode of Deep Space Nine. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I get that. But at the same time, like there's this one is like where they basically come out and say that what the allegory is more specific. I mean, the Maritza's yeah. wearing gray for crying out loud. Like that's, right? it's straight down <laughs> to the to the yeah, to the visual. Yeah, they couldn't have done it better if they hadn't if they had uh, jackbooted him just a little bit. Right. But the thing is, though, John, the the thing you te- you bring up though about teaching prejudice in the military that's not just isolated to the military. There's a lot of religious institutions that unfortunately do that. And I mean, I I want to no. speak to that what you're saying too. The big eye opening for the prejudice and propaganda for me um, was uh, was when I realized that there's 1.8 billion Muslims in the world. If they were all a bunch of plane hijacking terrorists flying planes into buildings, it would be happening about, you know, once or twice a week. But that's just it. Most Muslims, 99% of them, just like 99% of all of, well, humanity really, we just want to live our lives in peace. We're not looking for conflict. We're not looking, I don't care what you want to believe in, what you want to do with your own life. Just leave me to live mine alone and don't harm children and we're good. It's really that easy for me. Um, Honestly, most people just want to go to work, 
come home, have a decent meal, watch their preferred version of sports ball, and, you know, hang out with their loved ones. And I just want to stay home, have a decent meal, and play video games. I, I don't like working, <laughs> at least well, conventionally. And I think, and I think this episode really... I think it's one of the first times, if I really think about it, where it was just perfectly put. There was no forgive your enemy because you're nice. Take the high road and be forgiving. Like, that's not the story we were told. No, the story we were told was not everyone who identifies as your enemy is as villainous as you thought they were or capable of villainy as you thought they were. And th The story is don't judge a book by its cover even if the book is about the most egregious war crimes in history not sometimes the author was the sufferer or the author was an observer incapable of any kind of change and, and that's that to me was what kira really realized like because she got called a terrorist and she's mm -hmm. like i did what i had to do and he's like yeah and that's what god the heel said too yeah <laughs> and, and you and you think that he's Gardal Hill saying these things, but then you find out, no, he was a file clerk. Like maybe Kira's sister was a file clerk for Kira's battalion, right? And it's like, I, I wouldn't expect that person to have, to be punished for the, the crimes that Kira committed. And, and Kira doesn't, that was a really nice thing. Kira doesn't say she didn't commit crimes. Oh no. And, that that and, is and one thing I love about say he didn't commit crimes. Yeah, they that, both say it was, it was the love of country. Yeah, that is absolutely one thing I do absolutely love about Deep Space Nine and Kira's character. She one hundred percent owns that she knows she did some incredibly dark stuff during the occupation, but she felt at the time it was necessary, and she was doing what she had to do to to save her people. And the crazy part about it is the other side thought the same thing. And that is, I think, the true revelation that Kira walks away from from this is an understanding but of, the, oh, my God, they thought the exact same thing. The best circle that's written in this whole story is that both of them are trying to do the next right thing based off of all of their choices at that time. She has become the best first officer she can possibly be because she never wants to be basically a terrorist again. He has become Galdar Heel because Galdar Heel and Cardassia deserve to be put on the public stage for the crimes they committed. Neither of them are responsible for the beginning or the end. Neither of them were ever capable of ending or starting it earlier or later. But both of them knew wrong things were committed and both of them knew that they had to be better. And and to see Kira, she's been doing that the whole series. At no point has she like been a, a Mary Sue where she's like, no, you're wrong, Cisco. I'm right because I deserve to be right. And then see the whole episode goes, yeah, no, she was right the whole time. Yeah, yeah Cisco, yeah. fix it. No, instead it's like she comes off arrogant hot gets put in her place takes it becomes better like every good character in any good story does they learn from their mistakes and become better 
and and that's what i've been loving about doing this ds9 series is like yeah it's always been possible for writers to be this good it's just the rich idiots aren't paying the good writers anymore because they worked on ds9 and not i don't know lord of the rings or not Lord of the Rings, the other rings thing that Amazon produced. <laughs> yeah. well, just hire I, I, all of the writers on this John? episode. They're going to write you a story that's going to blow your freaking mind. Now, I'm going to ask this question every time we wind up with an episode like Duet. Because it's going to come up a few times down the road. Having watched Duet, do you understand why some of us could be so frustrated by Run Along Home? No. <laughs> because I... <laughs> God damn it. All right, we'll try next season. I feel like right. you're Yeah. <laughs> I feel like you're taking Run Along Home and you're you're trying to say it should have been better in a season. No, 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 no. Like John, ever we're not saying before. it. No, we're not saying it should have been better. It, it should have been completely scrapped and never brought to screen. Uh <laughs> But no, continue. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, and that that to me I think is like the best part about all of this is I can accredit the writers of Duet and I can acknowledge why you guys don't like the writers of Run Along Home. And yet, there's a full potential that they're the same person. I haven't looked. I they don't are know the sure. same, actually. <laughs> and, and there you go. Like, the fact that these writers can write both of them. If they can do that, this is the guy you pay to fix Rings of Power. This is the guy you pay to fix all of these blobs. Because... These people, these writers, especially on the Star Trek series, like Star Trek wouldn't be so ingrained in your hearts if the writers weren't as good as they were because I'm watching the graphics and I am punished. I watch Peripheral and I'm like, that's the greatest CGI I've ever seen in my entire life. And then I go watch Deep Space Nine and I'm like, yeah, like practical effects, bunk, game theory, bunk story writing perfect i'm sorry did you just say the practical effects in ds9 were bunk yeah comparatively because most of Um, like um they don't do practical effects on most shows these days in star trek i've yet to see a good punch oh the fighting's always been cheesy since the 60s you don't the hand-to-hand combat that's not a practical effect no but see that's the suffering i'm talking about it is a practical effect because once you learn about sparring and mixed martial arts you realize that you could just send your actors to go do some mixed martial arts learn the techniques of sparring and then they can spar hit each other and you know nobody comes out hurt and they also still know how to throw a punch properly not a double-handed hammer Here's fist, which what I'm going never to... makes any logical sense in the history of ever. Here, okay, here's what I'm going to say. In later seasons, the practical effects do get significantly better on Deep Space Nine. Uh, oh, hold on. I thought um, they were pretty good in progress when she lit his house on fire. You don't see that shit on TV these days. <laughs> I mean, you don't, though. True. So I'm sorry, but I find that practical. I find that practical effects comment either short-sighted or misspoken because it's not true at all. No, because I see good practical effects in Always Sunny. Uh, I I see. What are you defining as practical effects? Because a fight sequence is is a fight scene. That's not. No, that's not pyrotechnics. That's not visuals. You know, like jumping cars and shit. Yeah, pyrotechnics is, is is a pretty great one in especially in terms of pyrotechnics when the bridge shakes 
Yeah. Also, I, real quick, uh, from H. Marie, hello from work all. Hello, H. Marie. Thanks for joining us. Hey. Um, and then Arende says, fix rings of power, but it perfectly conveys the message. Well, and anyway. That's the, that's a whole extra part is the message. It, there is no organized message. And that's why it all keeps coming out as this vomit. Everybody's trying to say, I know what the good okay, is. You want to know how to fix it? looks like. And, and, and they don't. Rather than just like okay. going back to I'm the pretty sure this panel knows. Legacies. Guys, do you want me to fix Rings of Power real quick? Because I can <laughs> tell you exactly how to fix it. It's really simple. So you have to remember that the only works Amazon is allowed to pull from are the Appendices and the Silmarillion. Okay. Oh, and Unfinished Tales. Okay. So when you realize that you don't have the, you have the background plot to Lord of the Rings, you don't have the actual plot, you know what you have to decide to do? You have to lean into the level of crazy. I'm proposing you this. Take the Silmarillion, do an all nude Las Vegas style review, put it up. I guarantee you it'll do better. I guarantee. I was gonna say. Watch it. I was gonna say, just sell the rights to Lucasfilm and just do Lord of the Rings in the future, but with lightsabers. No, well, I think that's been done after Kennedy's gone. But well, it actually use the Silmarillion yeah. as your inspiration, though. I mean, that could definitely. Or are you saying Kotor? Is that Kotor inspired? Because if that's Kotor inspired, that's, that's I agree Kotor. by default. Is it really? That, that's that's Kotor. No wonder it's such a masterpiece. Which uh, Kotor's best Star Wars, by the way. Um, no, that's that's a perfect example point right here. If Kotor is inspired by the Silmarillion and is also Star Wars and has absolutely nothing to do with Middle Earth, then that means that you can take the works of the great, translate them to the world you're writing, and still be great. Yeah. If you take yeah. the works of the message team that have never gotten a even 75% on the critic scores of Rotten Tomatoes, or not the critic scores, but the audience scores of Rotten Tomatoes, then that goes to show you're taking the wrong good. Like, Tolkien wasn't considered a debatable good until people started, like, dissecting his entire life. Because as far as his story goes, it was always good. Do the right things despite how hard it often is to still do the right things. That's his biggest message. That's with the Lord of the Rings. If you yep. were to sum it up into one sentence, that's the Lord of the Rings. Now, And yet the message is that supposedly because of his 1920s lifestyle, it infects all of his writing that also, you know, changed the lives of everybody who's ever read it for generations. Like stop thinking that just because they got paid to do it they're good enough to do it yeah so Money with that speaking of lord of the rings we have decided that instead of doing christmas movies for each week we'll save that for another year because guess what guys christmas comes around again um we are going to do the uh 2001 to 2003 christmas tradition of lord of the rings so, starting not next week's show, but the week after on December 6th, we are going to be talking about the Fellowship of the Ring along with Tulsa King and the Peripheral. So yes, after we finish DS9 Season 1 next week, we are going to take the month off from DS9. Now, it wasn't originally the plan, but 
the timing's working out great so we can do Lord of the Rings and also, of course, keep up with Tulsa King and the rest of Peripheral. Um, but more uh, urgently, we have this Saturday. We are taking Thursday off because we feel like it. Also because uh, we have a very special guest coming up on the Rogue Council. So please, if you're not, if you're listening to this podcast and you're for some reason not subscribed to Corion's channel, you can feel better about it now that he has 667 subscribers. Congratulations, buddy. You're no longer the beast. Uh, thank you. Um, thank I'm, I'm sure that's a huge weight lifted off your I'm shoulders. I'm now the neighbor. What? Oh, we're losing. I'm now him. the neighbor of the beast. Ah, there it is. Oh, that's that's okay. Oh. <laughs> there it is. Got you now. Yeah, you're back. Um, yeah, it, yeah. So we're going to let's see. Rende says I get the feeling that Lord of the Rings thing is partially my fault. Uh, you could say that. I was definitely inspired by uh, some of your interactions in our exclusive Discord about that, and uh, I also was like, you know what? I haven't watched Lord of the Rings in a long time, and I always, I don't know, December always felt like along with Christmas time, Lord of the Rings time. Probably because for three years in a row, we had a new Lord of the Rings movie. Oh, man. So, uh, it just seemed like the right thing to do, since that's what the buzz is. And plus, I'm sure anyone watching this could really use a palate cleanser from the Rings of Power. So, yes, please consider joining us. We're going to do one uh, episode a week, starting or one movie a week, starting on the 6th. Uh, preference is the extended editions, um, but if you can't watch those, that's okay. The discussion's still going to be great. Um, you're really just kind of missing out on some extra scenes that make the, the films feel more like the book. If you're not yeah. sure where it airs, we're going to be watching on Hobo Max. <laughs> and we got to say it out because this is a talk. Yeah, HBO Max is where the extended editions are, are streaming. So that's that's where I'm going to be watching them because I can only watch the extended DVDs now. But... That doesn't mean we're only having a discussion about the extended DVDs. We're not that stuck up, at least not yet. Um, okay, we might because I haven't watched the short versions since they didn't have extended versions. I mean, I've never not only watched the extended, and I say that as I just got done rebinging the whole trilogy in October. <laughs> So, I still only watch the extended editions. It's not hoity-toity, I just have more time than you. I just, well, and it's just, it doesn't, I, I can't imagine not watching them. Because that's how, that's how much of a difference the extended editions do, and how much they actually add to the film. You know, it's not just, oh, well, you know, it's going to be a four-hour-long movie now. It's, it really, I'm glad to have them. And I'm glad both versions exist for, for each member of the audience. Um, other than that, uh, I do want to thank everybody who watched with us live. Um, and I also want to thank everybody who may be catching this on the replay or, uh, if you're listening in the podcast right now, we do appreciate every little bit of support. We appreciate it guys. Um, whether you're active in the comments, whether you're just watching us or whether you're downloading every little bit helps us to reach towards our goal of hopefully making this a full-time operation and uh, honestly, guys, you're not just going to get Super Quest, Casual Filth, or the Tuesday Night Live show. If we get to do this to be a full-time, we're going to make it worth your while and try to put out some 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 shows and stuff. That I'll, I'll gladly work five days a week at the Ryder Brothers. Same. If oh, 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 no, work no. five days a week at the Ryder Brothers. Uh, uh, we're going to start as a four-day, and then we're going to try and work down to a three-day week. 
But no. I respect that. Yeah, I, no, I, I we, we're not that. doing that 9 to 5, 40-hour post-industrial nonsense that has no oh, place no, in I the was, modern day. I was saying I, I'd be willing to do five releases. I'm willing to work seven days paid. a week for you people. You just got to pay me. I, here's what I would say. I'm willing to do, you know, a like three-day period during the month where I get a whole bunch of static content done and then do live streams every couple of days. That sounds like a job I'd be willing to do. Exactly, and that's kind of what we're, we're looking for and what we're looking to shape. But uh, all in its good time at the same time. Those of you who have joined us now, this early in the game, we're happy to have you. Mine, Petey York with Ryder Brothers. Have a good night. See you next week. This has been a presentation of the Ryder Brothers Tuesday Night Live. The Ryder Brothers, restoring respect into discourse.